This is the Asian Madness Podcast, a podcast where we discuss all things true crime, morbid, mysterious, and odd from the Asian continent. I am your host, Jessica. Hello, it is I, Jessica, the Asian Madness Podcast, here again to bring you another depressing episode about people who suck. Hope everyone's doing well, eating their veggies, drinking enough water, and doing fun things in life. If true crime has taught me anything, it is that anything can happen at any time. So please cherish whatever you have and go after your dreams, however big or small they may seem. Or just have fun. Anyway, this week's episode was suggested by a longtime listener who never fails to suggest interesting cases that need to be told. It's Adam P. from Melbourne. Great guy, super cool. Not just online, but also in real life. So thank you, Adam. So unbeknownst to me, this case actually made it to several countries across the world. And no, It's not some super clever international thief stealing from the rich. It's a lot less complicated than that, but nonetheless, worth a listen. For you people out there with children, I imagine it is completely unthinkable for you to harm your own kids, let alone kill them. I know, I know, there are terrible parents all over the world who have murdered their kids, either via neglect or maybe intentionally. Not all parents are great parents, as we will see in this case, where a man abandons his child in Melbourne and runs away. Sure, he didn't kill his child. That's a relief, right? Well, if you think abandoning his three-year-old wasn't too bad, wait till you hear what else he's done, as that may change your opinion. This is the case of Xue Naying, his wife Liu An-An, and his daughter Xue Qianxun also known as Claire, or as Pumpkin to many others. Let's begin. So let's start from the beginning. Xue Naying, whom I will refer to as Xue from now on, is a Chinese citizen from the province of Hebei. He was born sometime in the year 1954, and while he was born in Hebei province, he moved when he was young to Liaoning province a northern province bordering North Korea. What's interesting to note is that in Chinese culture, it is common for parents to go to what you would call a traditional fortune teller, and they would help you pick names for your kids. It all comes down to your birth time, your birth date, your Chinese zodiac sign, and maybe some other factors. Chinese characters are very complicated, and while they each have individual meanings, the makeup of the character have different meanings as well. These names that are eventually chosen are said to have major impacts on the person, as it can determine whether they become successful, smart, patient, or other not-so-great things. 
Sometimes the characters also have to match the person. Xue's fortune teller was positive that with his name, he would become an outstanding individual meant to accomplish great things. While I don't personally subscribe to the name fortune telling thing, I still get it. Traditions exist, and some are kept even till today. It doesn't really harm anyone, and it's a good way to help pick names when you have millions of Chinese characters out there for you to pick from. But was Xue really going to achieve amazing things in life? Depends on how you look at it. When Xue turned 8, he began taking up martial arts with his cousin, specifically Shaolin Kung Fu. Many of you may have heard of this, as it's probably one of the most famous types out there. So according to his bio, he began taking up various forms of martial arts after that, and became a self-proclaimed master of martial arts. So something to note is that Xue wrote an autobiography years later called I Was Not the Murderer, and some information will be from that. But since others tend to have a different version of who he is as a person, and how his life was like, you will get to hear different versions here and there. Now let's fast forward time. Personal life-wise, Xue was married and the couple had at least one child together, and one of them was a daughter named Grace. When Xue turned 39, around the year 1993, he was elected as the head of the Tai Chi Association in Liaoning Province. He was also nominated as one of the top 10 martial artists mastering in Tai Chi in China. Not sure how official this nomination and ranking is, but still, pretty impressive in a country with billions of people. A year later, Xue unlocked another achievement by becoming one of the best Tai Chi masters around the world. At this point, he's definitely not just some dude who thinks he's the GOAT. Clearly, many people thought very highly of him as well. I'd say China is quite nationalistic and people who cared about martial arts were super proud of him, being from China and all. So being a beloved master of martial arts, he wanted to do more for the community and for himself. He wanted to spread his love for martial arts. In the year 1996, he moved to New Zealand to teach martial arts, and it seemed like he was doing great. I believe he also took his daughter Grace with him, but not his wife. He resided in New Zealand for about three years, then went on to explore the world, hand-in-hand hand with his beloved martial arts. I don't know if you could sense it at all so far, but Xu was pretty proud of himself, and possibly not in a very good way. I don't know much about martial arts, so I can't really tell you if he was really top tier or not, but he thought he was, and he made sure everyone around him knew it too. After traveling the world for a bit, he decided he wanted to return to New Zealand to settle down. Since leaving China, his marriage basically fell apart. Maybe his wife wasn't keen on moving with him. Or maybe he was too focused on his martial arts, he didn't want to work on his marriage anymore. He basically left China to travel the world, and I would definitely understand if the couple drifted apart and saw no point in continuing their marriage. As a new permanent resident in New Zealand, 
He continued to spread the word of martial arts. He would organize annual conventions for Chinese martial arts every single year, even dabbled in the Chinese news agency in New Zealand, and proclaimed himself as, quote, an outstanding example of a martial artist turned media personality, unquote. Yeah, I think we can all see that he loves himself a little bit too much. Now, you may be thinking, Jessica, if you know nothing about martial arts, why are you so bitter and being so judgy? There are two main reasons. One has to do with his professional reputation amongst his peers, and one based off of his character, according to his peers. So he's been highly praised in China, and he thinks he's awesome. Cool, but what about others around the world? A famous martial artist from Taiwan, a man named Liao Bai, once stated that Xue doesn't have much ability-wise, but he's got money, so that helps. Another famous Chinese martial artist in New Zealand also expressed that Xue's background was all fabricated. It was also rumored that in the group of martial arts in LA, California, Xue's reputation was crappy and everyone who's ever met him found him to be a fraud with no substance. He was even said to have been banned from participating in martial arts events there. Some of his students also accused him of never really showing his skills, and they eventually suspected he had none. Then we have people who didn't like who he was as a person. He basically thought he was the god of martial arts, so he was undeniably cocky. He began to correct people around him, that instead of referring to him as the master of martial arts, they should refer to him as the grand master. He would also label other martial artists he deemed lesser than him as no good, and even told another accomplished martial artist that if they made an appearance in his annual convention, he would quote-unquote grant them the opportunity to shake his hand. When others began to notice his flaws and started to point them out, or, God forbid, argue with him, he would get extremely angry and defensive. Sure, no one wants to get attacked for their skill set and character, but when multiple people pointed out, maybe it's time to do some self-reflecting. Just a thought. Xue also had a habit of exaggerating his achievements, such as describing himself as a huge sensation when in fact, many people doubted him and he barely managed to get students to train with him. And even if he did convince some naive soul to give him a try, they usually ended up feeling disappointed. His accomplishments in China did not reflect the kind of love he got overseas. And since he moved to New Zealand, I guess it's safe to say that he lost a lot of support and popularity. He probably could have continued living his fantasy, if he had stayed in China. Some say that people who overhype their accomplishments and abilities are usually lonely, lack self-confidence, and are desperate for the approval of others. What do you think? Anyone come to mind? So this is where we get a bit more into the personal territory of Xue's life. As I mentioned earlier, Xue's marriage fell apart and he brought his daughter Grace with him to live in New Zealand. I don't know whether Grace wanted to go or she was forced to go, but either way, doesn't excuse what happened next. 
Xue was obsessed with his martial arts life. So when he continued to travel the world, he ended up leaving Grace all by herself in New Zealand. Grace was reportedly upset and angry about this abandonment. In fact, she was so upset she ended up running away from home in the year 2002. Xue found out, but he claimed there was nothing he could do. He basically said something along the lines of, I couldn't take her feelings into consideration because I had to travel around the world for three years to spread the word of martial arts. Father of the Year The truth is that he wasn't actually making money from his ventures, and he had to rely on other side gigs to make it work financially, such as subleasing his space or selling secondhand furniture. Despite it not sounding glamorous, it did manage to change his life, and the life of others around him. But not in a good way. As I said, Xue was doing some subleasing on his property, and a woman by the name of Liu An'an responded to one of his ads for room and board in the year 2002. The ad mentioned needing someone to do some labor work in exchange, they would get food and a place to live. So who was this Liu An'an, and how did she end up looking for labor in exchange for room and board? Liu An'an, whom I will refer to as Anne from now on, was a Chinese citizen as well, and was born in the year 1979. She reportedly had a pretty good life back in China, as her family did quite well for themselves, and she herself had a stable job working at a bank. After a few years of working, though, Anne decided that she wanted to improve her English and maybe see more of the world while she was still young. So in the year 2002, she left China and arrived in Wellington, New Zealand. Immediately, she enrolled in a language school. Learning languages can be hard. We all know that. It was especially hard for Anne, though, and being alone in a new environment was tough. She was unfamiliar with the country, its rules and regulations, and unfortunately, got into a car accident. Her bad luck continued, though. As her visa expiration date was coming up, she turned to a study abroad agency to help extend her visa, handing out most of the money she had on her. Well, this turned out badly as the agency simply scammed her and disappeared, leaving her broke and desperate. She had to drop out of her language school, work menial wage jobs due to the language barrier, and live in her car. This is when she saw an ad on a newspaper, stating that they would offer room and board in exchange for labor. She probably could have just gone back to China if she wanted to, but she felt like she wanted to get back on her own feet and not admit defeat. Besides, her parents used a lot of their savings to help fund her trip, and wanting to be a good daughter and not have them worry, she decided to try to work things out on her own. Anyway, this ad from Xue was heaven sent. It was her way to turn her life around. Or so she thought. In the year 2002 when Anne met Xue, Anne was young, only 23 years old, and was also in a very vulnerable stage in life. Xue was captivated by her, charmed. It didn't matter to him that she was, like, half his age. At this point, he could have literally been her dad's age. So like any dude enamored with a woman, he began to ask her out, 
take her to restaurants, coffee dates, karaoke dates, whatever else people did back in 2002. Maybe it was a midlife crisis. Maybe he felt like he didn't have much to show for in his life, being labeled a fraud and all. So the idea of befriending and dating a much younger woman probably seemed appealing and would definitely feed into his bottomless ego. I get that she's an adult, but at the same time I wonder how much control she even had with this guy. She was at a bad place in life. He was her landlord, paid for dates and helped her when she needed it most. Maybe she saw Xue as a genuine and caring person, so maybe she fell for him. Or maybe she felt like she owed him, since he was so helpful and she wasn't comfortable saying no, fearing he could end her lease and she would be homeless again. Others have also speculated that the plan was for Anne to marry Xue in order for her to obtain legal residency in New Zealand. I suppose that's possible too, since she wasn't too successful on that front. Or possibly, Xue was using his age and quote-unquote status to take advantage of a much younger woman. Who knows? Either way, the two ended up moving in together within months of dating, and before long, she became pregnant with their daughter. After being pregnant for a few months, Xue and Anne tied the knot in July of 2003. Their daughter was born in December of 2003. Anne named her daughter Claire, and her Chinese name, Xue Qin Xun, where Qin means thousand and Xun basically means looking for. I believe the name derives from a poem written during the Song Dynasty in China, so sometime in the 1100s. Meaning-wise, and I could be 100% wrong, it could be about finding her even if it meant looking a thousand times for her. Chinese literature people, please do not come at me. So what was their married life like? There are two versions, but I guess three total, as in her version, his version, and the real version. In Xue's autobiography, he talked about how wonderful and loving they were together, all the nice things you'd expect from marriage. Despite writing about how great she was as a wife, some people have pointed out that she has seemed more into the idea of having a young, beautiful trophy wife rather than an equal partner. He never really talked about her as an individual, if you know what I mean. Anne was not loud, kept a lot of her feelings to herself, so in a sense, she could be seen as the quote-unquote perfect wife who did what she had to do, like cook and clean and care for her baby, never complain. All that. But just because she was great at being a housewife didn't mean she had no thoughts or opinions of her own. It was said that not long after the daughter was born, Anne started to sleep in a separate bedroom, using her baby as an excuse to get away from her husband. This is probably a sign of an unhealthy marriage, and I do wonder how much say or autonomy she had. As for their daughter, Xue didn't seem to be too connected when it came to child-rearing. Rumors stated that he was disappointed it wasn't a boy. I don't agree with the sentiment, but honestly, I can totally imagine that. You've heard me say it multiple times, where many Asian cultures value sons over daughters, and maybe that was the case with Xue. 
The couple got married very quickly, so they probably didn't know each other that well to begin with. It took about three years, but Anne finally got to see who Xue really was as a person. In the year 2006, approximately three years into their relationship, Anne finally decided to remove herself from the marriage. She left her home with her daughter to seek help at a woman's shelter in Auckland. Why? Well, Xue decided to come at her with a kitchen knife. No idea what happened before this, but it doesn't sound like something that should happen in relationships. Anne did the right thing and went to the police to file a report and a protection order. Xue, though, insisted that this was a complete misunderstanding and that he was innocent. He accused Anne of orchestrating an evil and elaborate domestic violence scenario, lying about him wanting to kill her. He wasn't happy that she had ruined his reputation. Xue was released from jail after a week probably because Anne didn't pursue charges, and withdrew her police report. However, the protection order stayed in place for the time being. So according to Xue's autobiography, he went from singing praises about his beautiful young wife to calling her a conniving, hateful slut, detailing how she would ditch both him and their daughter late at night to go on dates with random men. This description of Anne did not really match the Anne that people knew as they knew Anne as a soft-spoken woman who loved her daughter more than anything. She was a main caregiver, after all, and would she really feel safe leaving her daughter alone with her husband? I wasn't there, so I can't say what's true and what isn't. So please take what I tell you with a grain of salt, if you wish. In November of 2006, Anne decided to take her daughter back to China to get away from Xue, and for her daughter to meet her grandparents. While Anne was away in China, Xue kept himself busy with a new girlfriend. Yes, he got a new girlfriend. This guy is either somehow popular with the ladies or good at manipulating women, because honestly, from what I've read about him, he doesn't seem very pleasant to be around. The new relationship, though, didn't work out, and he was starting to miss Anne. He wrote Anne a heartfelt email, apologizing, saying how he's ready to turn his life around because he wants to spend the rest of his life with her. Maybe he was sincere, or maybe he just wanted to lure her back in so he could see his daughter. Do we trust him? You might not, because let's be honest, most abusers don't just wake up, repent, feel remorse, and become perfect people. It's easy for us looking in from the outside and also in hindsight, but not so much for those involved. Anne decided to give him a chance. She returned to Auckland, New Zealand, sometime in March of 2007, and not surprisingly, the domestic abuse returned at full force only a few months into reconciliation. Anne once again filed a police report, stating that he had punched her in the face, threatened her with his sword, and also kicked her daughter at least once his daughter who was only three years old. Despite filing a police report, though, the police didn't follow up. The only repercussion Xue got was to attend mandatory courses on how to repair family relationships. I mean, maybe they didn't get how serious the situation was, or maybe they thought he was capable of change. To be on the safe side, though, police took away his passport and his sword. 
somehow believing that without a passport and a sword, Xue would be harmless. And though knew that her life was probably still in danger, so she immediately took her daughter and left Auckland, returning to Wellington, where she first started her journey in New Zealand years ago. So a lot of the following information is pretty unverified, and that honestly can't be helped because the dead cannot tell their stories. So here's the information I have. Anne arrived in Wellington with her daughter and rented a room. She somehow found out where she was staying at and allegedly showed up with an axe, threatening to kill her. The police were called and Anne's new landlord chased Xue off with his rifle or shotgun, not sure which. As expected, Xue did not face any consequences. During her time in Wellington, Anne allegedly began a love affair with a married man and began using online dating services. This information came from a blog that some believe belonged to Anne, where the blogger posted things about her romance with a married man. As for who the married man was, some say it was her landlord in Wellington, and if any of that is true, Anne sure was popular amongst landlords. Anyway, the last blog entry stated that the man's wife was returning home to Wellington soon, so she decided it was time for her to leave. This timing is interesting, because Anne did end up returning to Auckland some time after that post. But why would she go back to where her abuser lives, you ask? According to Anne's Wellington landlord, aka suspected lover, he said that she believed that the most dangerous place should be the safest. Kind of like hiding in plain sight. I guess I can see her reasoning, but sadly, it doesn't always work. Anne returned to Auckland with her daughter sometime in early September of 2007, and it seems like no one knew what happened to her afterwards. The only person that would know is Xue. Basically, Anne was never seen again. She didn't have family or friends around, and since she had been on bad terms with her husband, people who she did talk to probably thought she was just laying low or on the run. Not long after she presumably returned to Auckland, Xue went to the police station to report that he had finished his courses on repairing family relationships. He also asked to get his passport and sword back. The police checked his records again, noted that no other reports had been filed for this guy recently, so it must mean that he's a changed man, right? So they happily gave him back his passport and his sword, and he went on his merry way. Xue then did something quite fishy. He immediately bought plane tickets to fly out to Melbourne, Australia with his daughter. Yes, as in Anne's daughter, who was a little under four years old at this time. How did he get his hands on her? And if she was with him, where was the mother? Would her mother have handed her daughter off to this man and allow him to take her to another country? I don't think so, and as we know, you don't really need permission from someone if they're already dead. On September 15, a young girl, approximately three years of age, was found wandering around Southern Cross Station in Melbourne, Australia. She was alone. People eventually noticed that something wasn't right, so they tried to ask her questions, but understandably, she didn't have much to say as she was only three. They had no idea who she was, where she was from, 
and how she ended up alone at the train station. They nicknamed her Pumpkin, as she was wearing a pumpkin patch shirt, so that's what I'm going to call her from here on out. Police and other relevant agency workers were called in to assist, and immediately social services took Pumpkin in while the police worked to figure out who she was. In two days' time, they managed to identify her, but of course, they were unable to contact people who knew her. Once they looked through CCTV footage, though, they were able to piece together what they think happened. They saw a man, who was of course, Xue, and Pumpkin, walking around the station, and the man was seen leaving a child next to an escalator. Xue left her there, probably told her to stay put and that he will be back soon, except he left and never came back for her. Imagine that. Since the police already figured out who she was and who her parents were, they managed to find out that Xue left his daughter and headed straight for the airport and hopped on a plane bound to Los Angeles. So the father was MIA, and for whatever reason, they also couldn't reach her mother. That's when New Zealand police decided to do a little check-in at their registered home. And well, Anne was there, except she was dead and stuffed in the trunk of Shua's car. A few things were on the priority list. One was to make sure Pumpkin was doing okay. Next, they had to find out what happened to Anne. And lastly, they also had to find a way to track down Shue, who not only abandoned his daughter, but was also under suspicion of killing his wife. So first off, the Chinese embassy and Anne's parents managed to connect. And of course, it was heartbreaking for them to hear what happened to their daughter. Police and the Chinese embassy worked with each other and flew the grandparents over to reunite with their granddaughter, so that worked out. Next, what happened to Anne? According to investigations, Anne was most likely murdered a week before she was found, so very likely on September 12th, as she was found on September 19th. Anne spoke with her mother over the phone on September 11th, so the 12th was a safe assumption. Her body was already in an advanced stage of decomposition, but they were able to tell that her cause of death was most likely due to strangulation. Lastly, where did Shear run off to? Police from New Zealand and Australia worked together that notified the United States that there was a man in their country who was a suspect for murder and child abandonment. I suppose we can piece the whole scenario together now. Anne and her daughter returned to Shear sometime in early September, and Anne was killed probably on the 11th or the 12th. After killing her and throwing her body in the trunk of his car, Shia took his daughter to Australia, and maybe because he didn't want to bring her along while he was on the run, abandoned her at the train station. He probably thought his daughter would be identified very quickly if he abandoned her in New Zealand, so he took her to Australia with him and left her in a place where no one knew who she was. He wanted to buy himself some time. Then he took the next flight out to the U.S., hoping to escape his past and all his wrongdoings. What a scumbag. Xue soon became a wanted man in the U.S., and his case was even featured in an episode on America's Most Wanted. That's how badly he was wanted. Since Xue kind of had a head start, it wasn't that easy to locate him especially in such a huge country with lots of Chinese immigrants. For all we know, 
He could have run off to South America or even to Europe. Some months go by. The new year arrives. It's 2008. Four-year-old Pumpkin is living with her grandparents. Anne's murder is still technically unsolved. And shit is still nowhere to be seen. Then February rolls around. We now arrive at the city of Chambly, a city I have never heard of, located in the state of Georgia. A middle-aged Chinese man suddenly shows up here. He finds a Chinese community employment center and starts telling everyone he's a massage therapist from China looking for work. The Chinese lady working there is kind. She helps him settle into an apartment, sharing the space with a chef surnamed Wu. When the rest of the community tries to befriend this man, he tells them his last name is Gao, he practices martial arts, and that's about it. He refused to talk more about himself. This was odd, but people didn't find it odd enough to dislike him. Sometimes people have difficult lives or pasts, so in a sense, it's understandable. Suddenly, towards the end of February, Gao disappears for a few days. No one knows why or where he went to. A few days later, Gao reappears in Chambly as if nothing happened. Then on February 25th, the roommate, Wu, began browsing the newspaper. Then he sees something very strange. There was a news article about a wanted Chinese man that was spotted in Texas a couple days ago, the same days when Gao was away. Wu takes a closer look at the photo and the description, and he cannot believe what he sees. He quickly calls over a few of his buddies and shows them the article. It was clear as day. The photo of the man, the martial artist pose the man was striking, even the basic information on the man, it all matched up. They have been living with a fugitive. Immediately, these men call the police, except... They have trouble communicating with the police. I guess they wanted to explain their findings, but English is hard. The men then devise another plan. They would capture this fugitive themselves and lure the police over. Weird plan, but, well, that's what they did. A few days after the big discovery, on February 28th, one of the men goes to the police station and asks them to come quickly, come quickly and to follow him. I guess asking for them to come was way easier than explaining the situation. The other men then decide to ambush Gao while he wasn't paying attention. This is like a scene from some action comedy, but it worked. The men managed to tackle Gao, take off his pants, and tie him up with his own pants. And when the police finally arrive, they are initially confused, but they quickly caught on. They search the man's possessions and end up finding his New Zealand license and his daughter's passport. And friends, this was how Grandmaster Xu was apprehended. Xu was extradited back to New Zealand on March 10th, where he would face the consequences of his own actions. Everything starting here is pretty standard but definitely infuriating. It took more than a year for Xu to go to trial and his actions and words were, as you would expect, annoying. So a three-week trial began on June 2nd, 2009. He acted like he was the victim, 
literally cried out, unfair, in court, and said everything was not his fault and that he was innocent. So what happened during the trial? It was discovered that a day before Xue took his daughter to Australia, he was stopped by a police officer when they were driving. When asked about where he was headed, he panicked and lied that he was heading home because he was nervous and scared. Anne's body was in the trunk of his car. Of course he was nervous. Then it was revealed that Xue had gone to a travel agent as soon as he arrived in Melbourne, asking about a plane ticket flying out to Los Angeles. The agent told him that all the flights were booked up, and the next available flight would have to be on the 15th, meaning two days later. Xue was agitated and upset and he began to point at random parts of the world map, trying to see if they had tickets to random cities. Very strange behavior, and definitely not in a quirky, spontaneous traveler way. The agent was a bit confused and weirded out, but in the end, Shia settled for the flight out to LA on the 15th. He only purchased one ticket for himself. Multiple witnesses, those acquainted with both Xue and Anne, testified that they have seen Anne with bruises on her face and that she seemed afraid to talk about her husband. I think that's enough for us to know that Xue is definitely not innocent. But what about his defense team? They brought up the fact that Anne was not only unfaithful to Xue, she was also having an affair with a married man, and the reason she was murdered was because of some sex thing gone wrong, so basically it was all her fault. We see this used in court a lot, but legally speaking, this is not enough to warrant someone getting murdered. You can say someone is not a good person, but that doesn't mean they broke any laws. The situation between Xue and Anne was very complicated. They were together, and then they separated, then got back together. There was domestic violence involved, and let's not forget, Xue was also seeing another woman while Anne was away in China. And this woman also testified against Xue. Does that mean he deserves to die too, because he was also unfaithful? Unsurprisingly, Xue was found guilty for murder. He was sentenced to life in prison, but would be eligible for parole in 12 years. Kind of crazy to me, considering how unpleasant he is, and yet he's still able to get out if the board thinks it's okay. In that case, I hope they don't ever think it's okay. Xue used his time well in prison, apparently. He managed to become more fluent in English, he learned to paint, and he wrote his autobiography slash memoir titled, I Was Not the Murderer. This really gives me O.J. Simpson vibes with his book, If I Did It. In his book, Xue talks about his life before and after moving to New Zealand, meeting Anne, marrying Anne, his life hiding in the U.S., and how the trial was so unfair, how the police targeted him from day one, and how everyone thinks he's the devil. The years he spent in prison maybe really did something to him. Because during his first parole hearing in March of 2020, he admitted to his guilt for the first time since everything had happened. Quote, I'm very remorseful. I would like to apologize to everyone who was hurt. Unquote. 
Shira stated that it took a while for everything to finally sink in, and that's when he realized all the wrong he's done. He told the board that his reasons for killing his wife was due to misunderstandings and, ultimately, his bad temper. Quote, It was my fault. I'm really sorry about it. Unquote. He said many more things along the same lines, basically assuming responsibility for his actions, explaining what had happened, and how sorry he was. While the board felt like he was genuinely remorseful and different, they were not able to grant him parole due to two reasons. One, his lack of English proficiency essentially made it impossible for him to participate in programs addressing his violence in the past. Two, he was still deemed as a potential risk. At the end of the parole hearing, they decided to grant him a chance to work on himself with a psychologist and an interpreter. Who knows, maybe he will be out in a few years. He's already in his late 60s, so I don't think people will be too worried about him. Also, kind of awkward that he admitted to killing his wife after writing an entire book about not being the murderer. Let's go back a bit and talk about Pumpkin. Her grandparents arrived in Auckland on September 28, 2007, about two weeks after she was abandoned in Melbourne. The grandparents then took their granddaughter back home to China with them, and they became her legal guardians. If you remember, Xue had another daughter, Grace. She was very sympathetic to the whole situation with her half-sister, and she even set up a trust foundation in her name. The money collected exceeded 40000 New Zealand dollars, and while the grandparents refused to accept the money, Grace is planning on having it all saved for her sister's future. Very sweet of her, and I'm sure she has a lot of mixed feelings about the whole situation. It's definitely a difficult place to be in, and it sucks that their father put them in this situation. Pumpkin's grandparents also tried their best to protect her from finding out the truth about her parents, but she's a teenager now, and there's this thing called the internet. It was said that she spent some time looking into the case, and I assume it must be difficult to read everything people say about her parents, including those angry at her father, those slut-shaming her mother, and everything else in between. So there you have it. The murder and abandonment committed by a terrible husband and father. Like I said, Pumpkin is still alive and hopefully thriving. I can only imagine how confused she must feel at times. He is her father after all, but he did kill her mother and abandon her in a train station in a foreign country. Shue claims that he knew the police would take care of her and help her get back to New Zealand. But what if someone with bad intentions had come along? That's something that makes me doubt his words. It's somewhat comforting to know that he was caught after being on the run for five months, but part of me wonders if any of this could have been avoided from the very beginning. If not Anne, it very well could have happened to another woman. The law can bring justice later on, but really hard to take preemptive measures to stop things from happening in the first place. That's where we come in. Be good to each other. Have empathy. We can't change the world, but we can start little by little. Be kind to others, but also don't forget to be kind to yourself. Thank you all for tuning in to this episode. Like always, 
stay safe, and till next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Asian Madness Podcast. If you enjoyed my content, please rate and review me on iTunes. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or email me at asianmadnesspod at gmail.com.